good to be here. It's good to be back in the pulpit. I've been out for a couple of weeks, and I do appreciate the fact that we have men in our church, uh, elders and staff, who are uh, capable of expositing God's Word to you. I appreciate them filling in the past couple of weeks. Uh, We're back in Romans. Uh, You get a break from Romans every now and then when I'm not in the pulpit, but I'm back, and so we're back in the book of Romans, chapter 6. You heard Isaiah read several verses from there. We're just going to focus on one. And actually, we're just going to focus on part of one. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 6, or the the passage will be on the screen behind me, I'm sure. Look at verse 2, but we're only going to read the last half of verse 2. Which says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's the question we're going to look at this morning. But before we do, let's, let's pray together. Father, all across our city right now, Christians are opening your word to hear from you. Pastors are explaining, expositing, clarifying texts that might be confusing, challenging people to change their lives. I want to pray for those churches this morning. The church just right across the street from us, the church down the street, the Nazarene church, there's the Baptist church behind us, a Lutheran church nearby. I, I just pray that your name would be glorified in the preaching of your word this morning and that hearts would be soft, minds would be alert and attentive to what you're saying. Father, that prayer applies for us here as well. I pray for those who are hearing that they would listen carefully to you. These are not my words, they're yours. And they should carry the weight of being your words. So as we share them this morning, guide our thoughts, soften our hearts, speak to us this morning. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You know, sometimes, from time to time in in studying the Bible, you come across verses that we perceive to be of fundamental importance. Sometimes it's a personal matter. The verse speaks to us in a way we know it would not equally speak to others. When I was younger, in college and such, the big fad of the day was to have a life verse. Have you all heard of those? You have a life verse. You pick a verse that so either characterizes you or represents a goal for you, something to strive for. Or something you deal with. Whatever it was, you'd write it on a post-it note, stick it on your bathroom mirror, everywhere you'd go, it would be your life verse. The verse was important to you because of your situation in life. It might not be as equally as important to me, but it was to you. And it could be linked to specific times of trial or growth or blessing. Whatever the case may be, you would have a verse that went along with that time. It was personal. There are other verses that are important in a broader sense. They stand out as classic statements of basic 
Bible doctrines. The verse we come to now is in that category. This verse is important. It has fundamental importance because it teaches us basic Bible doctrine. John Murray, he was a Scottish theologian. He lived in the early 1900s. He died in 1975. He calls Romans 6 2 the fundamental premise of the apostles' thought in this chapter. This is Paul's premise. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And I think it's quite literally true. In verse 1, I'll have to remind you because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Romans. But if you look back in your Bible, if you have it open, in verse 1, Paul raises an objection to his doctrine. Asking the question that perhaps he'd heard as he traveled around, I don't know. But I would assume he had heard it many times, and that is, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? God shows his grace by forgiving sin, and grace is a wonderful thing, so let's sin more so we can have more grace. That's the question. His answer is very emphatic. Paul says, by no means. So that's the question, and then the answer, but what about the explanation? And the explanation is this, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's his whole position. So there is a sense in which I agree that everything that follows in Romans chapter 6 is an elaboration of this point. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? I mean, for one thing, he repeats the idea of us having died to sin or being dead in sin, dead to sin, in every verse, all the way up to and including verse 8. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Verse 5, we have been united with him in a death like his. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8, we have died with Christ. Now we'll mention verses 9 and 10 a little later, but... By the end of verse 10, Paul has explained this doctrine. And then in verse 11, he applies it. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he continues this thought all the way through verse 14. Then in verse 15, he's going to explain this whole principle again. But this time, using different imagery, this time he will use the imagery of slavery to teach the same thing. So an analysis of the chapter shows that this idea of our death, being dead to sin, is a fundamental throughout the entire chapter. So our understanding of the statement, we who died to sin, in verse 2, is critical to our understanding of the whole of the chapter. 
But the statement is even more important than that. You see, this is really the first section in Romans here in chapter 6 in which Paul begins to talk about the Christian life specifically. I mean, that is about living a life of holiness that's pleasing to God. That's going to be the topic. So if Romans 6.2 is the key to understanding this section, it is therefore also, I believe, the key to understanding the doctrine of sanctification. You remember, sanctification is that process of living a life holy unto God and becoming more and more mature, more and more like Christ as we go. Sanctification. This verse is the key to understanding the doctrine of sanctification. We'll come back to that. Because I think to understand this statement, we who died to sin, is crucial to understand how to live a holy life. Because it is the key to sanctification, I would go so far as to say that Romans 6.2 may be the most important verse in the Bible for believers in evangelical churches today to understand. So let's talk about it. This is not an easy verse to understand. So the way I'm going to handle it is by showing you a number of wrong explanations of this verse. The key words, we who died to sin. And then giving you what I believe to be the proper understanding of it. And we have time, don't worry. We'll run through these five really quick. But before doing that, I think it would be helpful to note just what the verse says. So the first thing we want to understand or see is that there is an emphatic use of the word we. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? In the Greek language, pronoun subjects of verbs are included in the verbal endings. There's Endings they can put on the verbs that tell you who's doing it. So they don't need pronouns in front of it. And a lot of times in the Greek language, you won't see one. But here you do. Paul inserted the word we intentionally. It's not necessary to have a separate pronoun, but he does it. And when he does it, it is to emphasize the subject, the we The pronoun can be explicitly added, which is what happened here. And so we need to take note of the we. What does the we mean? Why would he emphasize that? The thrust of the statement is to contrast we in this verse with others who are not in Christ, who are still in Adam. We talked about that. Or even to contrast it with ourselves before we were saved. We who are dead in sin, how can we continue to live in it? Before that, yeah, you surely could continue to live in it, but not now. And this is an important key, I think, to understand. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a Welsh, you know, none of these guys are American. That bothers me a little bit. Um, He was Welsh, theologian. He wrote this, the whole emphasis is on our uniqueness, our special position, we being what we are. That is what makes the question of verse 1 unthinkable. 
Shall we go on continuing in sin so grace may abound? By no means, because of who you are. Well, who are you? Well, you are those who are dead to sin. The second thing we need to know about this verse, and we'll see this as we go through these various interpretations of the verse, is the tense of the verb died. Now, this is not a Greek class, and I'm not, uh, look, I get all my Greek off a computer. So it's, it's very helpful. I don't intend to try to teach or even really understand fully the Greek language. But they have tenses to their verbs just like we do. But this one is called the aorist tense, and it means this. It refers to a single action that has taken place in and been completed in the past. A single action, one thing that has taken place in and been completed in the past. And that's going to be important for us to remember. Um, Because a lot of people see this word died, we have died to sin, differently. Some treat it as it was in the present tense. We are dying to sin. Others see it in the past imperfect tense. We have died and are continuing to die to sin. Some see it as a future tense. We shall die to sin. But died is none of those things in this verse. It is in the aorist tense. It refers to a finished past action. All right? So we'll come back to that. So I think since this verse is critical to our understanding of the why and how we are to live a holy life... We must proceed very deliberately, and we're going to do that. That's why we took just half a verse. So to begin with, I think we have to eliminate some misinterpretations, and I want to discuss five very quickly. The first one is this. That verse means the Christian is no longer responsive to sin. Christian is no longer responsive to sin. This is a very popular, popular view by some, but it's a very harmful one. It's an argument from analogy, and it usually goes like this. What is it that most characterizes a dead body? It is that their senses cease to operate. I mean, everything ceases to operate, but in this case, what we're talking about is their senses. They cease to operate. It can no longer respond to stimuli. I mean, if you're walking down the street or in the country or anywhere and you see a dog laying motionless on the curb, one way to tell if it's alive or not is to nudge it with your foot. If it gets up barking and running off or bites you or whatever it might do, you know it's alive. But if it just lays there, chances are it's dead. In the same way, the argument goes... The one who has died to sin is unresponsive to it. Sin doesn't touch this person. When temptation comes, the true believer neither feels nor responds to the temptation. (laughs) Sorry, I'm looking at my wife's faces over here when she hears these statements. I don't think she believes them. Uh, J.B. Phillips, who wrote a, a commentary, not a commentary, a paraphrase of the New Testament, the Phillips translation, which I don't recommend, seems to have held this view because here's the way he renders verse 7. A dead man can safely be said 
to be immune to the power of sin. That's true when we're talking about a dead man, but when we're talking about us as metaphorically being, having died to sin, but we're still alive, it does not apply to us. Verse 11 says that we are to look upon ourselves as dead to the appeal and power of sin. So what should we say about this? A lot of people like this view. Sin doesn't bother me anymore. I mean, the one thing in its favor is that it takes the tense of the Greek word correctly. It says that Christians have literally died to sin's appeal. But there's a problem with this interpretation. The problem is that it is patently untrue. There is no one like this. Do you know anyone like this? That's dead to the appeal and the temptation of sin. It no longer has any effect upon them. I, I don't. I don't know anybody like that. And anyone who is persuaded by this interpretation is, is going to be severely disillusioned at some point in their life. Moreover, this position makes nonsense, really, of Paul's appeal to Christians later in verses 11 through 13. Listen to this. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Why would Paul ask you not to respond to sin's temptations if you're already unresponsive to it. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. If this principle was true, you would need neither of those exhortations. So I think we can dismiss this interpretation, even though, as I said, it's held by many people. Let's look at number two. The Christian should die to sin. We see this in some certain types of holiness meetings where Christians are urged to die to sin. They may say something like, crucify the old man, which they're told in those meetings, this is the secret to the victorious life. I mean, the best thing that can be said for this view is that it ob it's obviously Correct, to urge Christians not to sin. That's good. Indeed, Paul did it. In the verses we just read, in verse 12, let not sin reign in your mortal body. And in verse 13, do not present your members to sin. But aside from that, everything else in this view is wrong. First of all, the starting point is wrong. It begins with man rather than God. The Christian should die to sin. Second thing is the image is wrong. The one thing nobody can do is crucify themselves. You just, that's wrong. You can't do that. But above all, the tense of the verb is wrong. Remember, Paul is not saying that we ought to crucify ourselves or die, but rather that we have died. He's telling us something that is already true of us if we're Christians. So we don't have to try to crucify ourselves. We are crucified with Christ. Let's look at the third view. The Christian is dying to sin day by day. 
Well, on the surface, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? All this means is that one who's in Christ will grow in holiness. And this is true. But we don't do it by increasingly dying to sin. I think it's true to say that we will have to be as much on guard against sin's temptations at the very end of our lives as we need to be now. Though by then we might be better at it, at resisting it, hopefully. To look at the verse that way, though it touches on something true, nevertheless gets away from the proper and only effective way of dealing with sin. And again, the tense of the verb die is wrong in this one. This interpretation takes died as if it is in an imperfect tense. We are dying rather than the aorist. We have died, which is what Paul actually wrote and thinks. And this is an important point. We're going to see it as we move through chapter 6. I'll put it this way. Again, back to sanctification. The secret of sanctification is not in our emotions. It's not, you know, it doesn't matter how meaningful they are or how intense they are. That is not the secret to sanctification. The secret to sanctification is something that has already happened to us. Number four. The Christian cannot continue in sin because he's renounced it. That's what died to sin means. The Christian cannot continue in sin because he's renounced it. This view carries no less weighty a name in favor of it than Charles Hodge. You may not know Charles Hodge. He lived from 1797 to 1878. And he is famous for his time at Princeton Theological Seminary. In fact, his time there was 50 years. He's most known for being the professor of systematic theology. 50 years. <laughs> so, just the fact that it comes from him gives a certain level of respect to it. He notes the aorist tense died, saying rightly that it refers to a specific act in our past history. But the question is, what was the act? The Christian cannot continue in sin because he's renounced it. So what is the act that happened in past history? Well, according to Hodge, he says it was our accepting Christ as our Savior. That act involved a firm renunciation of sin. He says since, quote, no man can apply to Christ to be delivered from sin in order that he may live in it. That makes sense. He says it is a, quote, a contradiction to say that gratuitous justification is a license to sin as much as to say that death is life or that dying to a thing is living in it. This is a good interpretation. It recognizes the aorist tense of the verb died and what it argues is true. What I've said so far from Hodge is absolutely true. Coming to Christ as Savior really does include a renunciation of sin. And to renounce sin and at the same time continue in it is a contradiction. 
If there were no other interpretations available to us, this one would be an attractive explanation of this verse. But, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones doesn't think it's that great. And I tend to agree with him. Here's why. In Hodge's interpretation, dying to sin, again, is something we do. It is our act. It is the act of accepting Christ. However, in Paul's development of this idea, dying to sin is not something we do or have done, but rather it is something that has been done to us. It's the same as our being joined to Jesus Christ, which Paul is going to talk about later when he starts talking about baptism. We didn't join ourselves to Christ. Rather, we were in Adam. And then God in his grace took us from that position and transferred us into the kingdom of his son. It is because of what has happened to us that we now are no longer to continue in sin. It is because of God's work that our continuing in sin is unthinkable. The fifth one, the last one, the Christian has died to sin's guilt. This is, to me, an inadequate understanding of the phrase, we who have died to sin, but it belongs to Robert Haldane, who, again, famous theologian, Scottish theologian, who lived in the 17 and 1800s, 1742 to 18, uh, 1764 to 1842. Very well respected. But he sees this dying in sin, dying to sin, as having nothing to do with sanctification, but rather as another way of talking about justification, or at least one result of it. Haldane says, it exclusively, this is a quote, it exclusively indicates the justification of believers and their freedom from the guilt of sin. And the problem with that statement is the word exclusively. It exclusively, this, okay, we're talking about the phrase, we who died to sin. It exclusively indicates the justification of believers and their freedom from the guilt of sin. This is true as far as it goes. The justification of the believer certainly freed him or her from the guilt of sin. And it is true that in this sense, the person has indeed died to that sense of guilt. As far as the guilt of sin and its resulting condemnation is concerned, it never touches a Christian again. He has nothing to do with it. But this idea does not go far enough. True, we have died to sin's guilt. But what Paul is dealing with here is why we can no longer live in sin. If all he is saying is that we are free from sin's condemnation, the question of verse 1 is unanswered. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This position doesn't answer that question. So at the end of chapter 5, Paul spoke of the inevitable reign of grace. And so now in chapter 6, he's telling us why this is so. It's way more than just being free from guilt of sin. So I think it should be obvious to you by now 
that having rejected five important interpretations of this phrase, we who died to sin, including ones by Charles Hodge and Robert Haldane, I must have a better view in mind, presumptuous as that may seem. But I think that is exactly what I do have, though I certainly did not invent this view. It is expressed in various forms by scholars like Frederick Louis Godet, John Murray, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. But I think the most helpful thing for me as I studied was John Stott's explanation of it in his book, Men Made New, which is his exposition of Romans, actually just a few chapters of Romans. So Stott begins by noting in Romans 6, there are three verses in which Paul uses the phrase died or dead to sin. So let's look at those together. We're going to put them up on the screen. We see it in verse 2, and it occurs again in verses 10 and 11. So let's look at those quickly. Verse 2, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's our text for today. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're going to leave those up for a minute as we talk about them. In two of these verses, in two of these instances, you'll notice that the reference is to ourselves as Christian men and women. And that is the first one and the last one. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And then the last one, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But in the second reference, in the middle one, the reference is to Christ. It says, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Okay? So it's a sound principle of interpretation, of interpreting the Bible. That whenever the same phrase occurs more than once in the same context, it should be taken in the same way, treated the same. Unless there are some powerful reasons to the contrary. So we see the same phrase in the same context here in Romans used three times. We should apply it the same way in every instance. Okay, does that make sense? So I think if we're going to do that, the first and obvious question we have to ask is to understand how Christ died to sin. How did Jesus Christ die to sin so if we were in a Sunday school class and I asked that, we'd probably get an answer like, he died to sin by suffering its penalty. He was punished for our sin and our place. And that's true. And if we carry that analogy, we'll come out near the position of Robert Haldane when it talks about freedom from the guilt of sin, referring to justification. But I want you to notice a couple of things. In verse 10, it does not say that he died for sin. It says that he died to sin. The exact same thing that is said of us. That's a different idea, or it seems to me to be different. Second, 
Paul's statement doesn't just say that Christ died to sin, but he adds these very important words, once for all. I mean, the verse reads, you can see it up there, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. This means that as far as sin is concerned, Jesus' relationship to it is finished forever. While he lived on the earth, he had a relationship to sin, and that was he had come to die for sin, to put an end to its claims upon us. But now, having died, that phase of his life is past and will never be repeated. Verse 9, I said we'd look at verse 9 later. Here it is. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And then it goes right into verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So we must now, after we understand that, apply that understanding of death to sin to the other two instances which refer to us. That's verse 2 and verse 11. So how? Well, by realizing that as a result of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, that old life, that old life of sin in Adam is past us also. We can never go back. We've been brought from that old life, the end of which was death, into a new life, the end of which is righteousness. Therefore, since this is true of us, we must embrace the fact that it is true and live for righteousness. Perhaps that's not even clear enough. Here's an illustration that Stott uses. Suppose there's a man called John Jones, an elderly Christian believer who is looking back upon his long life. His career is divided by his conversion into two parts. The old self, John Jones before his conversion, and the new self, John Jones after his conversion. The old self and the new self are not John Jones' two natures. They are the two halves of his life, separated by the new birth. At conversion, signified in baptism, John Jones, the old self, died through union with Christ, the penalty of his sin born. At the same time, John Jones rose again from death, a new man, to a new life, to God. Now, Stott says, John Jones is every believer. We are John Jones if we are in Christ. He says the way in which our old self died is that we were crucified with Christ. A little further on, he says, our biography is written in two volumes. Volume one is the story of the old man, the old self of me before conversion. Volume two is the story of the new man, the new self of me after I was made a new creation in Christ. Volume one of my biography ended with the judicial death of the old self. I was a sinner. I deserve to die. 
I did die. I received my just deserts in my substitute, Jesus, with whom I have become one. Volume two of my biography opened with my resurrection, my old life having finished a new life to God has begun. When we last talked about Romans three weeks ago, I posed a question to you, and that was, where do we go from here? And I gave you what the two alternatives were. Do we continue in a life of sin so that, as you know, some might piously say, grace may increase? Or do we choose the other path of God-like conduct? By now, you should be able to see that there is no possible alternative to God's path for those who are truly saved. The life of sin is what we've died to. There is no going back for us any more than there could be a going back to suffer and die again by our Lord. If there is no going back, if that possibility has been eliminated... And there is only one direction remaining, and that is to go forward. I'm going to ask our praise team to return to the stage as we wrap this up this morning. That's why I say that a right understanding of Romans 6.2 is the key to sanctification. Again, some people try to find the key in an intense Emotional experience. And look, I've been rebuked I don't know how many times in the office for not emoting enough, for not even acknowledging that I have feelings. But in this case, I'm going to stick to my guns and say feelings are not what we're after. The key to sanctification is not these intense intense emotional experiences, thinking that If I can just make myself feel close to God, I'll become holy. Others try to find sanctification through some kind of special methodology. That's where I I fall. I want a list. So I can do it every day, obediently. Anyone else like that? List people? We want a methodology. We think if we do certain things or follow a prescribed ritual that we'll be sanctified. Godliness doesn't come in that fashion. In fact, I think approaches like these are deceiving. Friends, a holy life comes from knowing. And I stress that word knowing as opposed to feeling. To knowing as opposed to hoping A holy life comes from knowing that you can't go back. You've died to sin and been made alive to God. John Stott says, A born-again Christian should no more think of going back to the old life than an adult to his childhood, a married man to his bachelorhood, or a discharged prisoner to his prison cell. Can an adult still want to be a child or an infant? Can a happily married man want to be a bachelor? What about a freed man becoming a prisoner again? Well, I suppose some could. 
but no right-minded woman or man would want to. And in the same way, no right-minded follower of Christ would want to continue in sin so that grace may abound. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, we acknowledge that we have died to sin and we struggle with still living in it. So I pray that we would take the facts of Romans 1 and 2. And I pray that you would just impress those upon our heart and that this morning you would teach us that there is no going back. There is only going forward, even if it includes obstacles, hard times, troubles, and trials. The only direction for us is forward. Teach us that today. We pray this in Jesus' name.